Welcome to the Gentle Rebel Podcast, who we're all about playing with ways to navigate life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort, I'm a sound artist, songwriter and slow coach, and I love poking and unpeeling the potential of gentleness in everyday life. Gentleness that stands with a firm back and a soft front, courageous and aware, patient and abundant, not forcing what needs to grow or rushing the things that require time. What on earth happens when we step into a formal meeting and seem only to see the professional roles, hierarchical titles and siloed labels? Why do we all let that happen? We're all people with fears, doubts, ideas and hopes. People who care. What stops us just meeting as people? These words were written by Bridget Russell, who is the co-founder of Spaces for Listening. I've been following Bridget for a couple of years on Twitter and many times experienced an uncanny sense of resonance with what she shares, like she's seen the messy tangle of thoughts in my mind and stretched them out in an articulate phrase or question. My intuitive sense that she would be really great to talk with uh, was confirmed when we met last month and then I was really happy to have the chance to participate in a Spaces for Listening session uh, not long after. It was a really lovely experience to be involved with. Uh, it was a, an opportunity to enjoy some protected space, to think out loud, to connect, to untangle, to feel the spark of inspiration as we bounced into and around each other without interruption, hierarchy or introductions. Everyone is equal in that space. Well, it's lovely to be here, Andy, in conversation with you. Um, and what I should say first in relation to Spaces for Listening is that it's something that I do along with my friend and colleague, Charlie Jones, and who who is the person who actually came up with the structure of it and the idea of it. And, that, and then I suppose we, we've both built on that. Where, where it came from um, was... Uh, I, I guess a number of conversations and interactions that he and I were having on Twitter three, three and a half years ago about that there never seemed to be enough space and that people don't have, we don't have, other people didn't seem to have enough space and enough space for listening in particular. Um, and and I think that that was there anyway, Andy. But I think that what the beginning of the pandemic did was really um, highlight that even more, as it did a lot of things. And um, where so where it came from, uh, Charlie had been doing some work in his hospital uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, something called Twenty Minute Care Space, which was a supported facilitated space for some teams right at the sharp end of, of care in, in emergency departments and acute respiratory wards right at the beginning of the pandemic. 
Uh, and then we we had a conversation or a number of conversations about actually maybe everybody needs this kind of space. And um, so what it actually is, is it's over Zoom because it started at the beginning of the pandemic. So obviously everything was virtual. Um, uh, and it's a 50 minute or 50 to 60 minute facilitated space uh, for eight people to come together and in three listening rounds and listen to each other and be listened to. And that's, that's it essentially. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, fortunate to be invited to one last month and kind of experienced it firsthand. And yeah, that is a really powerful experience because, you know, before I, before I came, like I was kind of a little bit sort of what, what, what do I expect here? What's going to, yeah, exactly. And I, what I noticed was through those three rounds, um, you just become more and more comfortable. And for me personally, like I always find it's like with icebreakers and things like that in group meetings where you're kind of asked, uh, tell us something about yourself. And you're yeah. like, I have no idea what to say. Yeah. Um, and so even that kind of starting with the, the question of what's on your mind at the moment, um, yeah. kind of like, oh, actually talking about myself, that feels a bit uncomfortable. But yeah. as you go on, then you sort of bounce off what you're yeah. hearing other people say and things like that. And it's just, it was a really beautiful um, kind of coming together of different, of strangers. Um, yes. well, as far as, I, you know, everyone was strangers yeah. to me. Um, and there's something about that cycling around um, that is really powerful. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I mean, it's lovely hearing you talk about it. I love hearing other people talk about their experience, experiences of it. You know, uh, Charlie and I have now, um experience sort of over well over 300 of them so uh, and and I still get I still get loads from it um mm. but it's but it's really good hearing other people reflect on it and just listening to you uh, reminds me of some of the things that in a sense are a bit of a conundrum or almost you know um a paradox in them which is when we started I remember thinking how will people react to what could feel like a constrained space because it's only 50 right. minutes and you've only got two minutes to speak uninterrupted and it's and somebody is facilitating it and putting their hand up and saying that's that's the end of your two minutes and i i wasn't sure and we you know we tried it out uh, a couple of times and then we just started and uh, i came really quickly to trust and now really love the feeling of that space which is this so there is a conundrum and the conundrum is that the structure like though it is holds that space so the fact that what what i experience and what other people have told us time and time again is knowing that you've got two minutes of uninterrupted space to speak is really liberating and isn't that there's something odd about that in a way because Prior to this, Andy, so, you know, what I do in my job, I'm a coach and I would years, a few years ago, certainly pre-pandemic, I would have been very precious about how much time is needed for a coaching session. I'd have thought, oh, you know, first of all, they have to be face to face and um, uh, and they, you know, at least an hour, probably more like two hours. And I'd have been quite clear in my mind as an, and as I say I would now describe it as quite precious about it needs to be this length of time 
And what the Spaces for Listening experience has really done for me is really challenged that a lot in a really good way, which mm-hmm. is there is a lot that you can share in two minutes if the people listening to you and yourself, and that includes yourself, is the quality of that listening is is the kind of quality of listening we experience in that space. So something happens in that 50 minutes that means people put their their phones down they don't check their emails they are they are as present there as they can be and and feeling almost a sense of relief that all they have to do is listen to seven other people mm-hmm. and that um you know people say i'm not just saying that people say that over and over again and there's something really powerful in that but also raises big questions for me about what happens elsewhere or yeah. doesn't happen elsewhere <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting that it's kind of, yeah, permission, the permission that goes on within that space, like with those constraints is, is really, I think we all enjoy a bit of like, you know, bound, like the boundaries that get put around things like that. But I'm really intrigued. Um, so like the context, certainly Charlie, um, coming up with this from his, uh, you know, working with those frontline healthcare professionals and, in environments where where time is mm. very sort of uh, stretched and precious um and it feels like well we don't have time to be sort of sitting around listening to each other like yeah. actually this that's a really powerful model that only takes two minutes um yes. so yeah i'd love to hear more about that the kind of implications in certain workplaces in, in that respect yeah well and and again it's really it's really interesting for me hearing you play that back because if i think about um you know now now i've worked with charlie for for you know over three and a half years uh what i find really i think we're quite different but what i find really useful is his challenge for example coming up with the 50 minute structure was based it, you know, very in a very structured way about, so first of all, people can't give up that much time. You know, so let's be realistic about this. If we are inviting people to this thing, if it's under an hour, somehow people will say, yeah, I can I can do this. And, and that, that usually happens. The other thing then is the structure drives the, the amount of time. So, uh, and I remember, as I said to you, I remember, the, at the beginning thinking oh will this feel too constraining but but what really genuinely happens is is once people accept the structure then they relax and there's a there's a sort of liberation that comes with it um and it, i think it's something about knowing um you know people will have been in lots of meetings and and sessions and development sessions that are a lot longer than an hour yeah. and they have a lot longer than two minutes times three to speak but somehow they don't feel they've had any free freedom at all to say anything that really matters so there's so what what charlie and i have both wondered about a lot is so what is it what are the conditions then that lead to that um and reflecting on your question about so what does this mean for our workplaces it's, it's the conditions that matter. So one really important principle for us is that people choose to come to this. You can't mandate this. You can't mandate, like, let's have all our teams going through spaces for listening. If, if, if people in an organisation tried to do that, our sense is that, it's, that it would not work in the same way. So there's a choice in being there and then bringing enough trust in the seven other people to... Um, to feel able to speak as openly as as we each want to or need to. 
Mm. Um, and and then there's something about and it's it's interesting actually because I'm thinking about this a lot recently. We've been asked a lot more recently about well, can you do this face to face? And of course, when we started this, one of the things was will this work over Zoom? And then you know what's it's a sort of sign of the times that we've lived through that it's now we've now got to the point where it's actually it really works because it's on zoom <laughs> and will it work in person and there's something about putting ourselves on mute on zoom means that we really we don't interrupt and we concentrate on what the other people are saying so there's something about that i think about mm-hmm. how do we bring that into our in-person interactions um and yeah, again, I'll, I'll pause because once you ask me a question about spaces for listening, I can witter. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting, the, that kind of, yeah, the difference, something being created on Zoom as opposed to something from, you know, in person. Yeah. Like, can we translate that to a Zoom environment? And, yeah, something I noticed, actually, you know, when you're when you're speaking in that, um, it's, I don't know, it's quite, it's quite nice not being able to hear because even like if you're in the same space as someone, you might even hear like, mm, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. And, and that kind of, that sort of feedback, although it does, it's not sort of big, but it does kind of, you notice it and you, yeah. you kind of change maybe what you're saying or you think about, you absorb it in some way. And, and that might make you aware that, Oh, people, people are, are taking notice and and actually one of the things i really liked so like, actually this is just a space to sort of articulate and yes. get out some of these tangled thoughts that are going on in my mind um without the judgment coming and it's yeah lovely exactly and it's really um it's really interesting because a lot you know over the last three years or so i've heard a lot of people say oh you know teams and zoom meetings can never be as good as face-to-face and i you know i always want there's something in me that always wants to challenge when someone is as, you know, as bold as that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I do, you know, I would accept that there are a lot of Zoom and Teams meetings that are pretty dire, but so are there a lot of in-person meetings that are pretty Absolutely. dire. Yeah. And, and my, you know, repeated experience of, of Spaces for Listening has been, it is possible to feel really connected to seven other people in a Zoom uh, room, uh, yeah. And and it's again, it's those conditions. What it, what are the conditions that create that? And and it's interesting when you were saying because it was really as you were describing it. Then it was really sort of taking me back into lots of the spaces because there is something about being on Zoom. We don't have eye contact as such. So people will say, well, so that you know that's never going to be as good. And yet there is just what you've just said. It, it makes me realize sometimes in order to be able to say. You know, so for for me, I've talked a lot about my grief in space for listening, not always, but, you know, quite a lot of the time. And sometimes I just want, I, I realise I am i don't need to, or in fact, perhaps want to have eye contact with anyone when I'm saying some of that. And yet it is really, really helpful to say it out loud and hear, as you said, hear myself say that out loud. And and the interesting thing was, because I think we've, we've focused so much on in the last, you know, in the years of the pandemic, how do we um, take things that were in person and put them on a virtual platform? And we've been needing to look at it the other way. So I did, you know, I've done a couple of in-person spaces for listening. And the thing that really shocked me that I wasn't 
ready for was that in facilitating a spaces for listening in person sat in a circle of chairs the person each person speaking looked at me because I had asked the question and they, they mm. you know they kept their gaze on me and I suddenly thought oh this feels really weird because when we're in eight people on a zoom screen we're all just talking into the into the space and something else you said that you know really really struck me was yes we don't hear their reactions but we do see their reactions so there's mm. often there's quite a lot of laughter in this listening and you can see people laughing and there's something lovely about that but it doesn't as you say it doesn't then it it's there but it doesn't interrupt and there's something really powerful in that i think wow yeah that's that's really fascinating the and thought about the yeah where you're directing where you're directing your conversation towards mm -hmm. and that yeah that idea of online in that zoom space it, it is a space you're just you're yeah. sharing into the space as opposed to directing at the facilitator or yes. at a particular person yeah and that, so i think what it i mean this is helpful because it's it's helping me process it out loud i think what that enables us genuinely for us to be alongside yeah. each other so although and actually i realize that's that's what it is because although i say you know, Charlie or I facilitate this, but we see that as a very, it's its not a standard facilitation role. It's not an expert facilitation role at all. We happen to, we ask the prompts and we hold the time, but we take a full part in it. So that's perhaps different. Well, it is different from a lot of um, ways in which the facilitation role is seen. And I realise as I'm talking about this out loud with you, that's, that's the way that my facilitation practice is, gone in general which is to be along to be much more concerned about being alongside a group than at the front of the room directing anything mm. i'm not interested not interested in working like that yeah that's great it's almost the difference between a kind of facilitator and a mediator role where you might not consider yourself as a mediator but when you're in that room with people at the front um, yeah. and you know i've been in meeting they used to infuriate me at my old workplace where we would have there would be meetings listening meetings um as they were sort of branded and it would as you were saying earlier it would just be that sense of like people talking for longer than two minutes but nobody really listening to anybody just waiting for them to be able to get their rant off their chest or whatever yes. and then you might have the meeting facilitator just sort of like basically tempering things and saying, yeah. okay, you've had your sit like, and it, nobody felt satisfied or listened to, or like kind of, yeah, respected or anything afterwards. It was, uh, yeah, they were always really horrible meetings. <laughs> yeah. Some things take time, not because we haven't found a quicker way, they just take time. Time to feel how things feel over and over, to notice what we avoid, what's too hard to say out loud, traps we fall into, and when we're ready to notice. Some things just take time, and they need to. Bridget wrote that on June the 1st, 2023. 
I'd be interested to know kind of what you've learned talk about conditions for listening. Um, and so, yeah, over those 300 odd sessions, what have you learned about the conditions for listening? What would you be taking with you when you're kind of thinking about these uh, in-person sessions as well, maybe? The choice being, as I said, that yeah. everybody has chosen to be there and what that that and the structure of it, which is a light structure, um, creates the permission for everybody and that it's non-hierarchical. And I know Charlie and I talk a lot about, you know, wonder a lot about power and, um, you know, I guess somebody could challenge, is it really non-hierarchical? Aren't you really in charge as the facilitator? But I suppose we do as much as we can to you know, because we take full part that some people when they come on it are surprised by that and say, oh, weren't expecting you to, you know, to, to speak as openly as you as you did. Um, so so I think that's I mean, it's one of the blogs we wrote a while ago was around trust. And um, I think us taking full part in it is part of what creates a sense of trust that we are not I'm not as facilitators sitting in any sitting apart from the group, I'm alongside mm-hmm. the group. And um, if I relate that then to the rest of my work, it has che- it, it hasn't completely changed how I work because I think I was going in this direction anyway, but it's reinforced for me that I want to be alongside uh, a group. And, and then that's a, that can be a really tough place to be as, an, as a facilitator, but my experiences that it's for me it's a lot more rewarding in the end um and it and it enables us to to be more equal Mm. yeah Mm. yeah and just picking up on my experience of the space for listening that was very evident and very powerful um in that i think you and you see it through the cycles of um going around the room so to speak um where actually the ideas emerge it's not you don't have a a theme that you have for the session it's like okay we're gonna all maybe talk around this particular theme or whatever it's like the themes that are going on that are real that are alive in people at that time come out and then there was this this weird sort of sense of the threads that everybody shared um and would just sort of bounce off one another um and that it's it's not sort of it's, it's, and it's so difficult to describe the kind of magic of all of that because it's not people giving advice or giving you know no. r- feedback to pe- people it's just like okay i'm gonna take what somebody else said and i'm gonna integrate it into my own situation just sort of express yeah. something through that yeah. um and that yeah that kind of facilitation role of of trusting whatever comes out comes out and yeah that then becomes really meaningful for the participants because it's okay this is relevant to me this has become something that's going on for me at the moment so yeah it's really cool yeah and I think part of that and this is the I mean this is a very live um exploration for for me for us at the moment because because we're writing some stuff about spaces for listening um but one one of the things is so you'll have noticed we don't do any introductions and we just go straight and nobody knows what anybody else yeah. 
and, and people don't know what I do. And it's quite funny because after, you know, when I meet people sort of outside of Spaces for Listening, sometimes they'll say, I don't even know what you do. <laughs> and I think, well, that, you know, there's there's some real power in that because then what what I, just reflecting what you've just said, I think those threads emerge and those areas of commonality and perhaps some difference emerge between us as eight people rather than um, as, as, as our roles. And of course, yeah. so then the translation into workplaces, what that, that's something that's really interesting to me because there's a real power in that, which when I have managed to get bits of that with groups I've been working with, it's it's been a real revelation where people are able to listen to each other as and this can sound a bit naff but can listen to each other as people first rather than the roles that they hold and i'm really i'm really interested in that because i think so much gets in our way Mm. in Mm. in organizations but also in society in general where where you know whether we like it or not we are starting to judge somebody before they've even spoken based on the role that they do or the organization they work for or the rank they have or don't have. Yeah. And none of that, you know, it might be floating around somewhere in spaces for listening, but it's but people are are staying more curious about it rather than getting fixed about yeah. it. And actually how it manifests is people get really fascinated knowing, you know, that they've met this person in another part of the country. They don't know who they are, don't know what they do, but something that they share how real has resonance so you know some common universal themes like grief loss uh transition um overwhelm exhaustion you know you name it it applies to all of us in different ways and it, it allows people to follow those threads rather than thinking oh i'm going to agree with the person who does a similar job to me because because we don't know that and it doesn't I mean, it doesn't matter <laughs> oh it's really cool yeah yeah, sort of really speaking to me about the, the thing and notice a lot of the time around conversation around community and how it's 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 very much sort of label or identity or role based of like the things we share, the where we come together in community with people is about those things that we have in common at that level, as opposed to those threads that we have in common at the the human level, as you were just yeah. sort of describing and. And that can really get in the way because then yeah. you're sort of you're jostling for okay where where do I sit in relation to yeah. this person are they more of that than me and yes. and you're sort of constantly just seeing them through the filter of um, what are they as opposed to you know who yes. are they mm-hmm. yeah and how yeah, yeah exactly and how are they yeah and so, like in a workplace situation where everybody knows one another's roles potentially how do you kind of transcend that Mm. good question um and there are uh there are some examples quite a growing number of examples of people who've come on spaces for listening with us and then uh, because what our intention is if people like it and they relate to it that they can just take the approach and use it in their own setting and there's quite a few people who are doing that and where it works best in my observation is in organizations where they've done something similar but at an organization level to what we're doing in other words they convene spaces that anyone can come to so for example one of the health boards in scotland they've been using it for two years or more 
and they just they set up these dates and they invite you know it's open to anybody any role any level and it's not done in a it's not done in a sort of corporate top-down well-being initiative kind of way it's just here's that here are these spaces and anyone can turn up so so they as I understand it you know keeping in touch with them they get very mixed groups of mixed as in as I say level profession um, place so people are all linked by the fact that they work for the same organization but in that case it's a big enough organization that the spread of people that are coming to each group is, is still quite eclectic um, so it, it works. It seems from what they say, it seems to work as as much as our very random spaces do. Um, and there are some examples of some people who uh, have chosen to use it within their team. And and again, you know, I think it can work, but you you perhaps need to come back to that thing I said earlier about the conditions. Perhaps need to pay more attention to some of the conditions. So one of the one of the questions we'll always ask someone if they say really enthusiastically that they want to bring it into their team and they are the team manager. Say, we'll just say you know just just be careful that you know because people might go along with it because you're the team manager and yet can you stay really true to the principle that people can choose to to come into it um so those uh, you know so I, I suppose what i'm saying is i think it can work and there will be some differences and those differences are not necessarily bad mm-hmm. but they but we need to pay attention to them This is an article called Trust in the Spaces Between Us by Charlie Jones and Bridget Russell. What about trust? All around us we see growing concern about a perceived crisis of trust in our institutions, alongside increasing polarisation of views across society. Yet we know that trust is an essential foundation for effective relationships and for working together well. We tend to assume that it takes a lot of time to nurture and build trust. However, our experience in participating in many spaces for listening throughout the pandemic is that we can establish just enough trust in a short space of time with a group of relative strangers. What can we learn from these experiences about how we might work with just enough trust in the spaces between us and collaborate in more effective, meaningful ways? Why does trust matter and what does it take? When we feel there is little or no trust between us, our interactions can seem incomplete, superficial and fraught. Living and working without trust uses so much nervous energy, it's exhausting. Perhaps we hold ourselves back from saying what we really think and feel for fear of ridicule. We second-guess each other. It can feel like we're in a game. There might be tension, suspicion and a sense of threat. We find ourselves questioning each other's intentions. We end up with excessively complicated processes designed to monitor and control our behaviours in place of fundamentally trusting each other's good intentions. So if we were to Google how to build trust, what might the inevitable top 10 tips be? The thing is, trust can't be 
put in place by learning a few strategies from the trust experts. It needs to be relational, and it's about our perceptions of truth and integrity. Dare we even use a word like authenticity? Knowing that this is another of those words that's become a bit devalued. Let's be honest, trust is far from straightforward or easily found. Building and maintaining trust takes ongoing care and commitment. It's not a fixed or linear concept which, once achieved, can be seen as done and dusted or taken for granted. It's alive between us. A meaningful and dynamic platform underpinning our interactions. How can we face up to the difficulties of trust? We talk about the erosion of trust in society, the casual disregard by some for the cornerstones of trust, integrity, telling the truth and behaving with respect towards each other. The risk is that trust becomes increasingly unstable with every throwaway populist soundbite and half-truth. Mistrust in our institutions is a cause for concern, of course, but what's the contribution we each make to building or eroding trust? We're talking here about our day-to-day interactions in our local organisations and communities. Our sense is that what we need is just enough trust, psychological safety and risk-taking such that we can have frank and meaningful conversations from our diverse perspectives about what's going on and what needs to be done by all of us. Populist commentators grab some headlines with sensationalised content. In contrast, the substance of trust is in the process. Trust needs to start somewhere. We each have a contribution to make. We need enough trust to get alongside and to understand each other And then we need to stick with it when the going gets a bit tough so that we can say what we really think and feel, disagree with each other respectfully, say, I don't know, if that's the truth. When we talk about trust, we need to be much more transparent about power. We start at different places, with different levels of readiness to be open to tell the truth and listen. Many of us have experience of invalidation and oppression, of putting trust in institutions and being let down by people in positions of power time and time again. We need to appreciate the power differentials and privilege which lurk in the interactions between us, even if we don't intend it. We need to be trauma-informed, both alert to what might be going on below the surface for others, and also aware of our own triggers and familiar patterns of reaction. We can only start from where we are, and it'd seem a stretch to just start from a place of 100% assumed trust. Yet, how can we begin to speak freely and openly with each other without having a sense of trust between us? It's too easy to say things like, you've just got to be yourself and speak your truth. But this often needs some kind of structure or container to make it feel safe and supportive enough. So what can we do? What's listening got to do with building trust? Time and again in spaces for listening, we've found trust in the space between us. In the light structure of three listening rounds, the equality of listening, being listened to without interruption, and in meeting each other as people, not as roles in a hierarchy. We trust that being alongside each other is just enough. Our presence and the concentrated quality of our attention is just enough. The process is just enough. 
we realise that we can support each other by just listening and letting go of the need to jump in with a fix to each other's problems. In less than an hour, we can feel a depth of connection and trust with eight strangers that we do not often experience in our local organisations. We can look people in the eye, on a computer screen at least, and recognise the humanity in all of us. How do these spaces compare with our day-to-day experiences in our teams and organisation cultures? And what might we learn from them? So is just enough trust enough? When we have just enough trust in the space between us, we're able to question and challenge each other. Trust is not a comfort blanket. It's about treating each other as equals and making conscious choices about how to live and take responsibility. As soon as we treat each other in a patronising or paternalistic way or with disrespect, trust is lost. We believe that trust needs to feel edgy and sometimes uncomfortable. If we're going to understand and appreciate each other's differences, then we need to be able to trust the space between us. It's not exactly a leap of faith, but sometimes we need to let ourselves trust just enough. Stay with the discomfort. Resist the instinct to respond to difference with a knee-jerk reaction. It's not about creating cosy, safe spaces in which we all seem to agree and reach false harmony. This is about spaces in which we can really hear each other, stick with the discomfort, and then find new clumsy answers together. It's about valuing our lived experience alongside our professional expertise with equal respect and curiosity. So what do you reckon? What do you think about creating spaces which feel trusting enough, where we can share our commonalities and air our differences openly? How can we treasure each other's contributions, stay open to and truly value each other's differing views and find solutions together? How can we be open to our assumptions and privilege, be willing to engage with some discomfort and commit to meeting each other in a more equitable place? How can we offer ourselves and each other the love and forgiveness for getting stuff wrong and staying open to learning along the way? You mentioned the article um, that you wrote with Charlie about trust. and I found that really fascinating read. And so again, this idea, there is space between us um, and we might be tempted to try closing it. And we see that a lot, um, but actually trust comes from respect and allowing people to, uh, to be who they are, to listen um, and to not feel like you're trying to change or manipulate them. Again, that kind of hierarchical facilitatory role that you might take um and yeah kind of interested to explore the values that we put into that space between us because sometimes uh we we might maybe consciously or inadvertently put something like agreement as a desired value like we all want to come to a place of agreement or compromise or whatever um and actually as i think it you wrote in the article, it's not about creating cozy, safe spaces in which we all seem to agree and reach false harmony. Um, so yeah, I'm interested to hear 
more about that. You know, how do we, what are the values we bring into that space um, when we're maybe not in agreement? Just as you were talking, I reflect that I've learned a lot from um, my friendship with Charlie on this because, and I'm thinking in particular about how he and I put tweets out into the world. And um, uh, sometimes people have said to me, are you not worried about, you know, what if somebody disagrees with what you've said or you kind of get in, drawn into, because the stereotype of Twitter, for example, is that it pushes us into being polarized and and um them and us and yeah. yes and no and for and against and um what what i've learned a lot from the way charlie interacts with people on his twitter threads is to stay really curious and to not jump in to defend a particular point of view necessarily unless you feel really strongly about it, but but actually to, to stay as curious as possible in that space. Oh, you know, tell me a bit more about that. And of course, I, you know, I'm kind of, I, I do know about that from my coaching because that's what I would do in coaching is to stay with open questions. Um, but there's, uh, I am, as, a, as I get older, I'm more and more interested in how do we stay in that space that can feel really, really uncomfortable where we think there are some different points of view. And what I see happens in a lot of places and spaces is that we go away from that discomfort or we try and resolve it. And resolving it might either be by brushing over um, or, or blanking out the disagreement or, or by trying to force some kind of false harmony kind of thinking about like the the defense mechanisms almost that kick in when we hit or witness confrontation or disagreement um and um, when we talked before uh you you mentioned um you know within spaces for listening if somebody like tears might emerge for someone and there's there's something is and it's always worth observing what goes on in you when somebody else um you're with starts crying or starts sort of mm-hmm. um emoting in some way uh like does that evoke a, an uncomfortable feeling in you and you're like i need to i need to stop it i need to eradicate that so that i feel better about, <laughs> about this situation yeah. um and it, i'm interested there's like threads between between that like allowing allowing tears to just be because um you know I said before like grief Grief is not a problem. We often see grief as a problem, but actually grief is our way of solving the pain of loss. Mm. It's a, it's a mm. mechanism within us that helps us to process. Tears might yeah. feel awkward to witness. Um, we yeah. might suppress them because we don't want other people to feel uncomfortable. And as, as a witness to them, we might be like, stop crying. There's no need to cry. Don't cry. And, and that's not helpful because <laughs> it's, it's sort yeah. of putting a blocker on something natural that's, that's kind of processing something. Um, and I think, yeah, I'm sort of seeing a link within disagreement as well. Like as that space needs to be there for people to, to disagree, not to then come to a place of agreement necessarily, but it's a part of the process of getting, going forwards to whatever it is that, that we're going forwards into. I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's so much in, um, there's so much in what you've said, and I, I, I was going to say I don't know where to start. So <laughs> I'll just, I'll just wander around. Um, 
I, um, what came into my mind actually is that 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 thing about uh, jumping into to resolve or to make something feel less uncomfortable. Funnily enough, where that took me was years and years ago, and like twenty years ago, uh, I I was going through infertility treatment. Don't talk about it very often, uh, not because I have any problem with it at all. I resolved it a long time ago, but I but it funnily enough, it took me to there because I then used to close down conversations, not because I had a problem with it, but because of the discomfort that it my perception was the discomfort it caused for other people and the avoidance. So then, you know, my sort of 20 years or more younger self dealt with that discomfort by I'm okay, but actually I've, I've got to make it okay for somebody else. And uh, contrasting, I guess, with uh, how I have experienced grief uh, in the last three and a half years since Jim died, where I don't avoid it. Um, so I don't avoid it, but neither do I confront it. And that's that's the the sort of resolution I suppose I've reached, and, and you've you've described it as well. Of how how I would describe it now is about being alongside it, uh, um, rather than feeling like I must solve this, or avoid or run away from it. Um, so it's it's that. It, so it brings us back to the space in between, actually, because it's neither one thing or the other. It's somewhere in between, but not because that's a compromise. Yeah, that's really like being alongside it. Yeah, there's so much in that as well. And <laughs> I'd, I'd, if you're comfortable talking about it, I'd love to hear some of what that, because, I mean, we hear the word like healing come up quite a lot. Mm. And, I feel this is a very relevant thing as well, where we might have an image of healing as being getting over something or like moving beyond something. And actually, I think yeah. how, what you've just described is a real, that's a real state of healing, of being alongside the thing, of, of having that chasm, um, knowing yeah. um, you, I can't fill this, this hole that has been left um, by something that I've lost or, um, you know, this, this grief yes. that I feel, but I can be alongside that. And yeah, I'd, have you got any thoughts around maybe your your story there with um, losing Jim and uh, the process of of healing and what that means to you? Mm. I mean, space helps. Mm. <laughs> uh, space is essential, and sometimes and and then sometimes the space is awful yeah. as well. Um, uh, I suppose the biggest reflection. Or one of the reflections I've had in the last three and a half years is that that we each need to find that way for ourselves. So the worst thing for me is to be told <laughs> there's these stages. So the stages of grief thing, for example, I, I don't doubt that it works for some people. It didn't. It didn't, and it doesn't work for me because it doesn't feel like it's a linear thing. And maybe sometimes I think that's is misrepresented um so i'm not judging it entirely but um but for me it's it's definitely a more um it's a more circular or swirling thing than it is a linear thing so does, my grief feels different now you know three and a half years on than it did at this this time in 2020 
but but it's it's just different it's not necessarily better or, or worse um and it is about how how we learn to live with something but but again not because that's a compromise but because we have because I've sort of absorbed the experience of it. So somebody said to me the other day, and I was so glad that they felt able to say this. They said, you know, some some good things come out of grief. And it, you know, you could, you could, you know, you could think, oh God, you can't say that to somebody who's experienced the death of a loved one. Um, but it's true. It's true. I remember in sort of at some point, a year or so after Jim died. Of thinking, yeah, I, I am learning a lot from this, and thinking, well, there's that feels awful, and yet it, it and yet it doesn't mm. at, at the same time because to not learn anything from it would seem like a bit of a mm. waste because I can't change. That's the thing I can't change that 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 Jim fell ill and he died. Can't change that, and he would be the f- first to say, well, well, in fact, he did. He said some very powerful things to me about. I wonder, I wonder how the rest of your life will be with genuine curiosity mm. and love and generosity. Um, so, so it's instead of seeing it all as, as doom, gloom and awful, what, what is, what are some of the, and perhaps healing is the word, what are some of the healing and restorative things that can happen? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really powerful. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It's it, and it, it kind of reminds me of um, so when I used to work uh, as an undertaker, I used to sort of mm-hmm. talk about this difference between kind of getting over and coming to terms with. And I think yes. that idea of, yes. uh, I've thought about that phrase coming to terms with something quite a lot over the years as like almost coming to, f- to face the thing that there is and integrating yeah. that and being, being with it and allowing it to to be part of that story going forwards and and there's a big difference yeah. between you know learning from from grief like learning within like that thing that has happened that you really didn't want to happen um yes is going to there are going to be good things that come out of that like lessons that you will learn that doesn't mean you would want to wish for that to happen um Exactly. But it's kind of that it's coming to terms with what has happened and yeah, moving with that alongside that space. Yeah. Exactly. And just something you said then reminded me, going right back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation about spaces in between, um what that what I thought about then, but didn't say, but it's brought brought it back to me now is that Jim and I spoke about um, that if we look back over our life together, which we did in his last couple of months, that, that the things that we remembered, that we recalled, were all the ordinary moments, how we would describe them, rather than the big events or the big holidays. Or the, so, so the context of that was that I, you know, I, I was saying, I, you know, wish we'd had more time to do X, and and he was. Um, sort of very wise and philosophical and saying well you know actually I've had a good life and we have had a good life and it's all of those you know ordinary everyday moments rather than the big huge holiday to wherever um that that he was recalling and I you know I've had cause to remember that many many times since so something about what you 
said about I'd forgotten that you'd worked as an undertaker something that you said there about coming to terms with I connects for me with um uh that thing about what's really really hard as someone going through grief is when someone else doesn't want to mention the person who's died and I understand why people I completely I'm not judging it I completely understand I have been one of those people in the past not wanting to mention the person who's died as somehow this is going to evoke some uh, upset but of course you're thinking about probably thinking and feeling about that person all of the time anyway and that actually what really helps to come to terms with somebody not being here is being able to talk about them, um, but not in reverential uh, putting on a pedestal terms, actually in all of the funny, um, lovely, uh, uh, witty, wise, ordinary moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's, that's the thing that, you know, it's kept, it's sustained me a lot in the last three and a half years. And I think, you know, I, it's not that I purposefully go and think about it. It happens. So it'll be a phrase that somebody uses will remind me of something that Jim used to say. And I love that. Mm. So that's part of coming to terms with, I think. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah, and I suppose that sort of speaks to the, we were saying before about protecting other people from, you know, I, I'm going to be okay so that you're okay like i'm not gonna um you know mention this because it might make you feel a bit uncomfortable and actually with the the whole space for listening being able to you know you don't have to it's not a space where okay come and talk about this now come and you know talk about jim talk about it's like actually i just need the permission when those things arise to be able to just say it yeah exactly exactly and again uh in the theme of space uh, I realize I you know I have I have chosen not to go to spaces that are specifically for people experiencing grief which doesn't mean of course that I don't think you know I think they have some use for some people but they haven't worked for me and and it is because perhaps it's because and I didn't you know we didn't set out for spaces for listening to to be this as such but what what it has enabled me to do is just as you described it to to sometimes show up and be able to uh you know talk about how hard I'm experience how hard my experience of grief is but sometimes and more often than not to actually share something really funny mm. uh, that's just popped into my head about about me and Jim and and to just feel all right with sharing that and seeing people's reactions is actually rather lovely mm. um and not having anyone jump in and lots of people talk about this so this is not just my experience uh the that there's something really liberating about not having people jump in to fix and offer a solution yeah um, even though you know so often of course that's done with the most positive of intents but actually we don't need we don't necessarily need yeah, that absolutely yeah it's a strange it's a strange kind of mechanism in humans isn't it to to jump in because it, it like I'm constantly like oh be, being aware of it in myself where it's like actually no they don't need they don't need you <laughs> they just need your presence they just need that that yes. space it's like they're not expecting anything they don't need anything fixing they don't need advice unless they ask for it and it's kind of like yeah yeah remembering it's all about the consent and you know in yeah. in everyday uh, 
communication. I love your tweets. They're always so, there's like a lovely mixture of like really reflective, often things that you've articulated that I've been thinking about. It's like, oh, that, that's what it, that's what I've been trying to get to in my thoughts. Um, and some, some funny things as well. Um, and you, you wrote about uh, when you went back uh, swimming. So the unspoken protocols and idiosyncrasies of lane swimming. Um, I'm rediscovering them starting with the whole social order behind self-selection into medium, fast, slow lane. It was so fascinating this morning that I hardly noticed the first 10 lengths go by, which is a good thing. Um, and <laughs> oh, it, that really took me because I haven't been swimming for quite a long time, but I remember I wrote a blog post about it uh, oh, probably about 10 years ago where it, it was the, the difference between when you're out of the pool before you get in and then when you're in the pool, how you look at people. So like I was, yes. I was yeah. like, no one's letting me in, you know, when you're trying to find a space. No, ah, these, they're so selfish. And then when you're in the pool swimming and someone comes to the side, you're like, oh, no, not another one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. And it, it just sort of, yeah, that really made me think about, you know, the spaces that we share and the way that we, um, yeah. I th like, I guess with swimming as well, it's a dynamic, there's dynamic movement and we're, we're sort of moving around, bouncing off one another in, in the world and, uh, spaces that we have to share can feel a bit cramped at times yes. we're moving at different speeds slow medium fast are we in the right lane um, yeah. so many like lovely metaphors around life um, but yeah I'd love to have you got any thoughts about those uh, unspoken protocols and idiosyncrasies of lane <laughs> well it, you know uh, it was really funny when you when you shared with me that that particular tweet I was <laughs> Because I I I had done it as a bit of a throw throwaway, yeah. and and then actually the fact that you'd pick, picked it up made me think, oh yeah, okay, so I'm I'm kind of never really off duty thinking about <laughs> things, and because uh, I actually my my brother said to me, oh god, how can you bear lane swimming? Because I you know I I uh, I don't know I did about I do do about forty lengths. He's like, don't you get really bored? And clearly not. You know? yeah. so, so much to think yeah. about. <laughs> something to think about yeah um i i mean i listening to you play it back and and thinking about it now out loud it, it's kind of like it's it's one of those hackney phrases but like all of life is there like how have we chosen which lane we go into and what you know so i go into the middle lane because i know i'm you know when i first went back i was thinking oh you know it's been a long time since i've swum so I better maybe I better be a bit cautious and go in the slow lane and then could feel myself getting really a bit impatient and and not wanting to get in other people's way by overtaking all the time mm. so I kind of gravitated the middle lane um uh I suppose what you know as I'm thinking about it now there's so much I suppose why I said un, unspoken because we no one says this is what you ought to do going to the pool and actually if they did I wouldn't want that if there was a if there was criteria yeah you know like can you imagine <laughs> you've got to be able to do three press-ups before you can go in the middle lane or whatever um so so we kind of there's something is there something about we're relying on some goodwill some generosity um what assumptions oh, I mean all sorts of assumptions that are running about 
who's going to be faster, who's, you know. Um... I always put myself in the middle. It's, <laughs> it's just, so that's, uh, I think yeah. when, I, when I first went back to it, when I was writing about it, it was, I started in the slow lane because like, I must be, you know, everyone else is going to be loads faster than me. And then it was, oh, no, actually, I'm okay. But I can't go in the fast lane. That's, yeah. I'm certainly not yeah. fast. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's funny, actually, what you're, you are making me realise now is, so, so there's something about, it's, it's very levelling and humbling, actually, when I, you know, without getting too serious about it. But what I observe in the slow lane is um, there's a lot of chat going on in the slow lane. But that's a good thing. If I think if I if I relate that across to, you know, stuff that I'm interested in elsewhere, I you know I thought well isn't it brilliant? There's clearly people who are meeting each other and going regularly. I think well brilliant. They're doing they're doing some physical exercise, but they are meeting each other, and we haven't got enough places in in our communities where people are meeting. Um, but but then you know so I'm saying that and I realize I'm being a bit sort of pious and worthy saying that because actually when people are sort of meeting in the middle lane and they're gathering around the end I don't like that yeah. <laughs> actually because I'm trying to get up and down do my lengths um so so I suppose maybe there is yeah there's something here about because we don't we're talking about it but I guess when you're in the pool when no one says oi hang on a minute <laughs> yeah um, and and actually, why not? You know, why? Yeah, I don't know. Like it translates to all sorts of other areas of life as well, where you know people get in your way, and that's why I wanted to like the yeah. spaces that we share, and like yeah. do we feel like people are in our way, or do we feel do, do we see them through that lens of like, oh no, it's great, like people are are pausing and chatting, and like actually, yes. you know, living life to to some yes. degree, um, and. You know, we can feel like oh, head down. I've, I'm doing my lengths. I'm getting, and you know, you need to yeah. get out of my way so that I can get this done and and move yeah. on to the next thing. But it's interesting because actually, just as you say that, I was thinking, and would I want somebody to engage in conversation with me when I've gone for my swim? And the truth is, no, yeah. actually. Um, which saying that out loud <laughs> feels a bit, a bit like you know, well, she's a bit grumpy. But actually, I've chosen. It took, it, and actually, then so then it's the other, perhaps the other analogy here is we don't know what else is going on in people's lives. So it took a lot for me to go back swimming lengths, actually. Like, and so I, so part of my reflection, I think, was just the sheer relief and sense of uh, achievement that I'd gone back to doing mm -hmm. it because I love swimming. I absolutely love swimming. Um, but getting there took a lot. And so actually, if somebody had started chatting to me, it's like, no, not now. <laughs> I've got others, I've got other spaces where I'm gonna do that. Yeah. But how would anyone know that? How would anyone know that unless I say, um yeah, so yeah. and we need like traffic lights, little <laughs> swimming yes. uh, red, green, red, yes. green, or amber. Yeah. I'll <laughs> I'll stop to say hello if I've got an yeah. amber on, but I'm not I'm not having a yeah. chat. <laughs> green light yeah it will stop in the slow yeah. and have a, have a good chin wag yeah and to finish i kind of wrote space for meaning um and picked up on a, a couple of other tweets i thought t your tweets are just perfect little anchor points what if we could see it as life in progress? 
Strive less, live more. Less frenetically, more slowly and gently. Live with incompleteness and contradictions. Care less about the shite. Do more about what really matters. Laugh as well as cry, often in the same moment. Stories we tell, and ones we don't, not out loud anyway. Yawning gaps in between, and words half-whispered, remaining unheard. Or breathing, drifting, hanging on the air. Meaning is found in the space between, often when we stop trying to describe or articulate it. Is found in small actions, exchanged glances, and shared moments. Meaning isn't forced, and it can't be reached before it's ready. And so I was kind of reflecting on those, thinking, you know, this, this idea of meaning itself, life is found in that space between. Um, often when we stop trying to describe it and articulate it and possess it, um, and it's found in small actions, exchanged glances, and shared moments. Uh, it isn't forced, and it can't be reached before it's ready. Um, and that spoke to, you mentioned the stages of grief. Um, to, and David Kessler has written um, Finding Meaning. Um, kind of, and he writes about, in that book, he writes about the fact that, you know, it was never meant to be a prescriptive process. Um, it was just sort of, picking up on some of the patterns that you see within grief. Um, and he created, he sort of wrote about this sixth stage that he'd noticed for himself um, and in other people that he'd worked with um, going through grief, which was finding meaning, um, which, you know, we've kind of talked about um, already in that, that sense of like, when you're coming to terms with that, with that loss, with that grief, um, you can start to find meaning in it in that, oh, actually, good things have come from it, um, but it can't be found before it's ready. It can't be uh, thrust upon you by someone saying, you know, well, good things happen in shite situations or, you know, it, you'll like everything happens for a reason, like all of those trite sort of uh, platitudes that, that, you know, people might say with the best of intentions, but actually are really, are really hurtful. Um, so, yeah, any... Uh, I've just thrown a huge amount of stuff at you there. <laughs> Any kind of thoughts on the space for meaning and where we find mm. meaning in, in the space between? Well, where I went to when you said about space for meaning was, um, I suppose, to, to share, when you've mentioned about my tweets, the part that being active on Twitter has played for me in the last few years is... I mean, to be frank, uh, in the first year or two of, of living with grief and living on my own and being in lockdown, sometimes the connections on Twitter, they weren't all that I had, um, but, but they were really important. And um, so that opens up, and again, I don't impose this on other people at all, but this is what what work what worked and continues to work for me is that I have made lots of connections with people um, on Twitter. I mean, <laughs> you and I have met through Twitter. Mm -hmm. 
um, I've made lots of connections and the connections have, so when some people say quite cynically or, or, you know, kind of joke about it or challenge it and say, but those aren't real connections. You don't really make friends on Twitter, do you? And my sense is, yes, if you are open, or for me, anyway, I'll just talk about myself. Um, if you're open to sharing what's meaningful or what has meaning. So when I say stuff on Twitter, I really, I do mean it. I, I might change my mind and I might, you know, sometimes they're, so sometimes they are incomplete thoughts or maybe often they're incomplete thoughts, but I have met some people who have met me there. Um, and, and, you know, there's people that I have met on Twitter who are now really, really good friends and who have helped me and hopefully I've helped them along the way in the last two, three years, which I don't think I'd have done before. So that's something about stepping into a space, being prepared to step into that space and be open to, sh to sharing. So a lot of people have said that to me, like, you know, do not worry about what you've shared. And sometimes I have, um, you know, early on talking about grief, I, I worried about some of it. And then I thought, actually, I'm not, I'm, the thing is, I'm not prescribing anything. I'm just, this is, this is kind of on my mind just now. Um, so, so, so that was one thing that came out of what you asked. The, the other is I've become in, increasingly interested in, and can't really believe that it's taken me to this age to realize this about really valuing the different ways we know things or the different ways of knowing. Um, and uh, the, the range of people that I've met again through Twitter has just been sort of eye-opening for me and um, makes me so uh, uh, makes me question and be curious about why in in lots of organizations and in say formal education the need to con to constrain and control and to fit fit into a model I un understand why perhaps we all do that at times, but what does it, that need to neaten things up? So the need to neaten up grief, and, and I, you know, I, I agree that the stages of grief were not, just not intended to be applied as a linear step-by-step -step mm -hmm. model, but that other people have done that. And what, yeah. what is that? What, well, it's because this is too messy. It's too, you know uncertain let, let's control it and maybe that works for some people but it definitely doesn't work for me it doesn't mean being in that messy space is sometimes awful yes and then sometimes it it leads to something else um mm. yeah beautiful yeah <laughs> <laughs> resonate with that so much that kind of need to neaten up and and it, like I have that and I've noticed that within me, there's like this tendency to, oh, you, you want to put things in ni nice, neat boxes. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's what I want to do, but I know that that's not life. Um, yeah. And so it's kind of then grappling with that um, and allowing, you know, the incompleteness and the contradictions, which actually are, they are the things that, that make the space for real, genuine connection. And yeah. when you're talking about the way that you, uh, yeah, kind of, they might be incomplete thoughts or kind of things that you're thinking about at the time you would post them on Twitter. It's like, actually, there's a difference between the question and the answer and you're providing a question. And that is so much more, you know, even if you're not asking a question in the tweet, the tweet has implicit within it, a sense of an invitation to think about something 
um, without you saying, as you say, prescribing an answer yeah. or like giving this this thing of like this is the truth. Um, so yeah, something really powerful and uh, as a, a conduit or a catalyst for connection internally and with yeah. one another in that. Yeah. And of course, the the the, the slight danger in that is is being misinterpreted um uh which i'd probably used to worry about a lot more and it's still there sometimes and actually though one thing that really helps me with that and i can't remember if i said this to you before but um so jim was a songwriter and one of the things that he used to find it really intriguing sometimes amusing but intriguing when someone would have a really uh, such a clear view of what his lyrics meant a particular lyric <laughs> and he'd go oh, right okay and it wouldn't really be what he thought it was and I remember saying to him is that not really annoying though and he said no not really um he said it just it, it makes me really curious and he said but and and actually this was a real sanctuary reminder for me he said at least it means they're listening to the um because a lot of people don't really eat that used to drive him mad more was if people listen to songs and oh I never listened to the lyrics and he'd be like what yeah. <laughs> so, um so that so I sometimes have that in my mind of thinking actually yeah so so if somebody you know who am I to say if someone's read something that I've written I and and they've made sense from it in a slightly different way that's okay as long as they don't then impose that back on me you know or, or blame me for it which I, you know, haven't ever experienced that actually. But yeah, if it, if it's so, it's back to meaning. If if we're we're each finding meaning from something, then maybe there's the space for some further dialogue or further exploration of that meaning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you see that, don't you, in the comments that you get underneath your tweets? Like different people, we all read things through our own. Yeah, the moment that we're in and the things we're maybe thinking about or going through, like that is going to have an influence on the way that we interpret and understand. And as long as we're sort of aware of that and not, yeah, in again possessing your meaning or enforcing this sense of, yeah, oh, this is what you mean. It's like actually now I've got to understand that I'm, I'm reading this as me, um, not as you. Uh, And again, that's something that I I really credit my um, experience on Twitter in the last few years and some of the brilliant people I've met through that has really, and in terms of, you know, how it translates into my work, it's really made me very questioning and, and open um, about the way we use words. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by words. I love words, Um, but it's made me really, you know, it's really changed. Well, not, changed but it has shifted my practice about how we use labels and being really not to to get so so uptight about that that we you know that we've become uh trapped by that but actually just question being really questioning of so so when someone read this what what was their starting point and their starting point was different from mine and that's why they've read it differently and how interesting is that and then that brings us back to space because then we need the space in order to explore that and let that be, let that be so. Because if we try, if we, if we're short of space or then that's, that's where I think the problems emerge because we've, we've reached a judgment rather than staying in the space of exploring it a bit more. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautifully put. Yeah. It just <laughs> reminds me of like 
I don't know if you ever get it where you go back and read something you wrote a while back and you're like, what on earth did I mean by that? <laughs> yeah. It's like, actually, I'm, I'm not in the same position I was when I wrote that. And yeah. I'm really, yeah. like when I wrote it, I'll have been absolutely like cocksure certain of what I was writing yeah. and it would have made complete sense in the context of my brain at the time. But now I'm like, what? Yeah, what was that? <laughs> what was that? Yeah. 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 And that's most people are engaging with us from yeah. those different from those different places so yes space mm. space for that oh, beautiful work is part of life and life unfolds in twists and turns yet career development is too often seen as the neat linear acquisition of professional expertise and solitary experience Let's recognise that much learning happens in practice, in the mess, in the connections between us. You can connect with Bridget on Twitter, at BridgetRussell51, B-R-I-G-I-D-R-U-S-S-E-L-L-51, and search for the uh, hashtag spaces for listening to meet other people who are experiencing and experimenting uh, with this way of connecting and who have experiences with uh, spaces for listening sessions. Um, and I recommend if you've connected with anything that you've heard in this episode, do get in touch with Bridget and find out more about these sessions. They're really, really powerful stuff. Um, and yeah, if you'd like to support the creation of uh, my music and get exclusive bonus uh, extended play episodes of the Gentle Rebel podcast and behind the scenes listens uh, to uh, stuff that I'm creating, um, especially as I'm creating my album at the moment, Home is Nowhere or Home is Now Here. Uh, come and join me on Patreon. You can uh, now get a free week trial so you can uh, look around and see what's what and kind of get a sense of whether or not it's right for you. All supporters get an executive producer credit as well on forthcoming song and album releases. Um, so visit patreon.com forward slash Andy Mort to find out more about that uh, and to uh, yeah check it out. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I will be back again soon with another episode of the Gentle Rebel podcast. Uh, until then, do remember that in the space between the stimulus and the response is an opportunity to choose the actions that we take and gentleness with a firm back and a soft front is always an option, even when it appears not to be. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Oh, Bridget, well, thank you so, so very much for, yeah, taking the time to chat. It's been, oh, I've loved this. this such, <laughs> these sorts of topics are just so fascinating and I could talk about them for <laughs> for days i think the same here as you probably noticed that's <laughs> yeah, great yeah really appreciate it um yeah well take care thank you thank you very much <laughs>